Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Revelation chapter 11, and if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. Uh, so, where are we chronologically in the book of Revelation? Uh, you know, we've just gone through uh, the sixth trumpets that have been blown, have have sounded. We're at the kind of right in between the last, the seventh trumpet being sounded, and and once that sounds, there'll be seven seals that will be opened, or vials that will be poured out of God's judgment. So we're right in kind of in between the sixth and seventh uh, trumpet, and. Uh, not that I'm not. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not condoning this, but I used to. I really used to like reading Tom Clancy novels. They're not edifying, so I'm not saying go get a Tom Clancy novel and read it. But I, I used to like the spy novels, you know, the Jack Ryan type stuff. And one of the things that I kind of liked about the way that he wrote his books, and I'm sure a lot of other authors do that, is that they will, uh, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll have a scene. You'll be reading about something going on somewhere, and then all of a sudden it'll switch, and, the, and then you'll be reading about something else. And it's kind of, what, he, what he's kind of doing is he's, he's kind of going from here to here to here, and he's building kind of a, a story. And, and and as you get to the end of the novel, everything kind of fits into place and it makes sense. We're kind of at that place right now in what we would call parenthetical information in the book of Revelation, where there's this, this isn't necessarily chronologically smack dab in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, but this is some parenthetical information that the Holy Spirit has given us uh, just to give us kind of a fuller picture. And when everything comes together at the end of Revelation, it, it all fits together and all makes sense. Um, and so that's where we're at right now in this little parenthetical information there, or this interlude, as some people might say, between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And so verse one, it says, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. The reed for measuring. You know, the Jordan Valley, the Jordan River Valley has got lots of reeds along the river and uh, they were lightweight, straight and tall. They made excellent measuring rods and so that's what they would use in those days. They would take the reeds by the river there, you know, probably strip the the, the, the branches and leaves off and they've had this nice lightweight rod that they would use for measuring. Now, a Hebrew measuring rod in those days, in fact, in Ezekiel chapter 40, there's a measuring rod that Ezekiel uses to measure uh, the millennial temple in chapter 40. That rod is six cubits long, which, you know, we don't know exactly what a cubit is, but it's about 18 inches. And so a, a, a Hebrew measuring rod was probably about nine feet long. Now, a Greek and a Roman measuring rod was 10 feet long. And so this measuring reed this, that, that, that uh, John is told to use here, it's, we can guess it's probably somewhere between 9 and 10 feet long. Interesting thing about verse 1 is that it implies that there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation. That's one thing that you know, we don't see right now, right? Uh, the first temple... The very first one that was built in Jerusalem was built by King Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The Jews went into captivity in Babylon, in Babylon and 70 years later the Lord brought them out of captivity and they were allowed to rebuild another temple. And so the second temple was built by Zerubbabel 
And he was the governor of the province at that time and Joshua the high priest. It was a very simple and a meager temple compared to Solomon's temple. I mean, Solomon's temple was just amazing. In fact, there were people that were alive that saw Solomon's temple before they went into captivity. Seventy years later, they come back into Israel, back into Jerusalem. So these would have been old men probably and old women. And it says that you know the, the younger generation, everybody was joyful that there was a temple built. But those older people that had seen the glory of Solomon's temple, they were weeping because they realized it just, it's just not the same as what it was before. So that was the sem- second temple. Well, there was a third temple. You might say, wait a minute, there's only been two temples. There, there's a third temple, or temple 2B, I might say. Not to be like Shakespeare, but 2 and the letter B. Um, uh, this, what happened was King Herod, in the first century B.C., he looked at the temple that, that had been built by Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, and he enlarged it and expanded it and renovated it. And uh, basically, it was one of the larger building projects of that century. And it was uh, huge compared to even Solomon's. I was looking online at some, some floor plans of the, of the different temples, and, and uh, Herod's temple was huge compared to Solomon's temple. But he built it as a legacy to him. You know, he was into building things and just kind of carried his name. You know, it had it was Herod's temple and stuff. And uh, his lasting, and he built it as a legacy to him. And his lasting legacy didn't last very long because uh, not more than maybe a century after him, that temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. I always think about that, about 100 years. You know, what's important to you today? Your family, of course, family is important. Your relationship with the Lord. Hopefully your relationship with the Lord is important. Your job, you know, whatever your, your home, whatever it is that your, your career, whatever it is that you're doing is important to you today. But let me ask you this, and it kind of, kind of puts things into perspective. Is that same thing going to be important to you 100 years from now? Is it going to make a difference? Because sometimes we get the wrong focus, right? Will it matter 100 years from now? Well, anyways... So that temple, you could call it the third temple, or you could just say the second temple because it was basically the second temple only renovated. That was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Now in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is is going to Jerusalem. He's with his disciples there. In chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, it's not like Jesus hadn't seen the temple. He had been in the temple. But I guess what's implied here is that they were like, look, like, check this out. You know, isn't this amazing? You know, just kind of uh, in awe of the building, uh, the temple. In verse 2, it says, And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That was a radical statement in their day there. That was inconceivable in the mind of a Jewish person living in that day that the temple would be destroyed. That, you know, when you look at and when you read about the, the construction of the temple, the massive blocks that weighed tons that they, that they, they had in place there to build the temple, it was amazing. Um, and so no one could, I mean, how could you imagine that that great big thing that Herod had built, that it wouldn't be standing here? In fact, 
Jesus's enemies, when they arrested Jesus before his crucifixion, they said, hey, he's threatened to tear down the temple, you know, and, and destroy it in three days. And of course, he was, the Bible tells us he was talking about the, his temple, his body. Um, but it was inconceivable in the mind of a Jewish person in that day that that, that temple would be destroyed. And yet, in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian tried, you know, he as they as the Romans conquered Jerusalem, he actually wanted to preserve the temple. He didn't want the temple destroyed, but one of his soldiers was a little overzealous, and there were people that were hiding out in the temple, and one of the soldiers threw a, a torch into the temple. The temple caught on fire. Uh, it, the fire just it consumed all the people that were inside perished um, and the gold that was all lined everything was gold covered in the temple it melted down between those massive temple stones and so the roman soldiers to get the gold out of that and so the fire was out they basically or literally i should say dismantled stone by stone the temple in order to extract the gold and you know like i said prior to 70 a.d it was unthinkable that that temple would be raised and yet think about it john here he's reading he's 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 writing this the book of revelation and as he's penning this the temple had already been destroyed about 25 years earlier it was a reality see that that whole thing is a testimony to god the truth of god's word as god said it it's what exactly what happened well, based on verse 1 here in chapter 11, we know that there's going to be a third or, or a fourth, depending on how you count it, a temple that's going to be built during the tribulation. Now, uh, if you've ever gone to Jerusalem, and you don't even have to go to Jerusalem, you can go on the website to the Temple Institute. It's www.templeinstitute.org. Uh, uh, these are called the Temple Mount Faithful. And it's a group of, of Orthodox Jewish people in Jerusalem that are planning for the third temple. Uh, they are, uh, they are, they've got, you know, I think now they've, I think they have the ashes of the red heifer now. They've got the, the vestments and the clothing that the high priest wears. And they're even training people with the name of Kohen, because that's a, that means that they were of the tribe of Levi, that they're training young men to become, you know, to do animal sacrifices when the time comes that they'll have another temple. Uh, they're doing everything. To, and if you ever go to Jerusalem and get a chance, go and visit the Temple Institute. They've got, it, you know, it's kind of cool to see all that stuff. And, you know, we went, when we went to Israel, we went and, and visited that place. And, you know, it's exciting to see those things. For me, it's exciting because it kind of gives you a reality of, you, you read in the Old Testament about, you know, the priests and everything, the furniture and the stuff, and then you see it and, and you go, wow, that's, I guess that's really what it looks like. So in that sense, it's kind of, it's kind of cool. And, and the thing is, Christians can get so excited about the Temple Institute and about the, 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 this, all the stuff with the temple. But what's interesting here is what God tells, or what the angel tells John there. He says, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now what's interesting as you read through this chapter, we're not given the dimensions. We're not given the dimensions of this temple and altar. Remember Ezekiel, in his vision, he was told to go out and measure the temple, of the millennial temple that will be built. And he gives us the dimensions of it. Um, but we don't get the dimensions here. 
And there's another odd thing with this verse. Not only is, is John to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, but he's also to measure those who worship there. Measure the people. Isn't that something kind of bizarre? Well, I think, you know, if we take a literal rod, like I said, nine or ten feet long, you imagine standing that up against even Gerald, for example. You stand that rod next to he's he's not going to measure up to that. He's going he's gonna to come short of that measuring rod. Any man would. Any person that would be measured against that rod would come up short. But I think the Lord's conveying a message to us through that. You know, as believers, as excited as we might be about a coming Jewish temple, and, and it's exciting to hear about all that stuff that's taking place, our excitement about it should only be because that means that the return of Christ is that much sooner. It's just it's like one more thing that's, that's just showing that we're getting that much sooner to the return of Jesus Christ for his church. You see, because in reality, a Jewish temple with reinstituted animal sacrifices, it's an affront to God. And it's a complete rejection of Jesus Christ. It's a complete rejection of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They're wanting to forget about Jesus and they're wanting to reinstitute animal sacrifices. So we can get excited about the temple. It's, it's cool to find out that they're, you know, they've already got the ashes of the red heifer. But I tell you what, it's an affront to God. It's not cool to God. It's offensive to him. And it's a rejection of Jesus Christ, his son. Listen, can you imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? You know, he's on the eve of his arrest He's going to get tortured and beaten beyond recognition. He's going to be humiliated and then crucified on a cross. And as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible tells us that he was sweating great drops of blood. I mean, just, just the agony and the heaviness of, about what was going to, to, to transpire. And in Matthew, we're told in chapter 26, verse 39, he says, Oh, my Father, if it is at all possible... Let this cup pass from me. In other words, the cup of suffering. You know, we're given a glimpse into the, into the heart of Jesus during this time. If it's at all possible, gee, I don't want to go through this, is what Jesus is saying. Could you imagine the father responding to the son, saying, son, your sacrifice for sin, it's only going to be one way for people to come to me. Yeah. It's an optional way for you to come to me. There are many ways for people to come to heaven, to come to me. Your sacrifice is just going to be one of many options. Could you imagine the father saying that to Jesus when he was there in the agony of, of Gethsemane? There was no other way. The reality is there was no other way for a person to come to the father but through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for their sins. There is no other way. And that's why Jesus had to go through with it. So this temple, this altar, and the people who worship it, we don't even need to know their, the dimensions of it. Why? Because no matter what, they're going to come up short to God's requirements, to God's standard of righteousness. They have to, they, they are, they'll come up short, plain and simple. So you see, there's a concept here that I, that I think is, is coming out to us, and that is that God is the judge of man's worship. 
Now, you know, as Christians, we go to different churches and there's different styles of worship in different churches. We have a style of worship here that's maybe different from the church down the street. Or, you know, there's a lot of people judge worship today. You know, some people say, well, we need more hymns. Others say, well, we need less hymns. Some people say, well, we need more praise choruses. Too many hymns, you know, we need more praise choruses. Others say, hey, we need less praise choruses. There are choruses, excuse me. There are others that say, you know, we shouldn't have instruments in church worshiping. Everything should be done a cappella. Others like, you know, we need instruments or what type of instruments? You can't play a drum in church or guitars or whatever, you know, uh, or the atmosphere of worship. You know, we need an atmosphere. We need dim lights and, you know, we need a person up here painting a painting while the, while the worship's going on. We need to create a, a conducive atmosphere for worship. Everybody's got, you know, these opinions about what worship should be because man judges worship today. You know, what it boils down to, and this is my own opinion, but I think what all those arguments boil down, boil down to is personal preference. Now, some people say, wait a minute, there's, and they'll have a biblical reason why they have what, what why they have. But even if they try to make it sound biblical, I honestly believe it boils down to personal preference. And I'll be honest with you, God is less concerned with the style of worship than with the heart of the worshiper. That's what he's more concerned with. You know, I'll, I'll be totally frank with you, and, and you, I'm sure you've experienced it too. I've been in places where worship is difficult. <laughs> it, you know, the, it's, it's just, it's not my style. It's not my preference. And in those situations, sometimes it's very difficult to worship. Um, but it's at those times when I have to make a choice. Am I going to worship the Lord from my heart? Or am I going to sit back and go, you know what, it's not my style. I'm just not going to sing. I'm not going to participate. It's not my style. Or do I or I say, you know what, it's not my style. It's definitely not. But you know what, we're here to worship the Lord. I'm going to worship him. It's at those times when it's difficult to worship that you have to make a choice. Are you going to worship from your heart? Or are you going to refuse to worship because it doesn't meet your criteria? You see, God is looking at our hearts during those times. And if you're insisting on worshiping him only on your terms when you feel it's right to worship, then you've totally missed the heart of worship. I've got to be frank with you. You've totally missed it. So these Jewish people, they're going to feel like, because everything's right. You know, for 2,000 years, they have not had blood sacrifices so they've kind of they've kind of made excuses for the day of atonement. Well, it's a day when you afflict your souls, you know, it's an emotional thing and stuff. When in reality deep down and the, the orthodox orthodox knew that know this that there's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And so now they finally got this temple. Now they can finally they got they've got the worship stuff just like it was in the Old Testament. Everything feels right for worship. And God's going to look at their hearts. And it doesn't matter what it looks like because they've rejected him. They've rejected Jesus Christ, his son. They're trying to worship God on their own terms and not his. And it's, it's not going to, it's, it won't be accepted by the Father. So this temple... 
that's going to be built during the tribulation because verse 1 implies there will be a temple. Well, you might be thinking, and rightly so, how in the world will the Muslim world give permission for a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount? You know, in 1967... The Jews, you know, the, the, they, they won basically, uh, you know, the majority, they won, won, won. They, they, I always say won, and it sounds like I'm saying won like the man won from Mexico, but I'm not. <laughs> Just the way I pronounce things. <laughs> Anyways, um, they, they got the Temple Mount, basically. I'll just say it that way. They, they got the Temple Mount. They, they conquered it in a battle, right? And Moshe Dayan, who was the defense minister, did something that just angered a lot of Jewish people. He gave the Temple Mount or the, the authority of the Temple Mount back to the Jordanians, to the, to the, uh, uh, the Waqf, they're, they're called. And, and so these the Muslim people have control of the Temple Mount right now. And people are like, why did he do that? Well, I think it's because God wasn't ready for that to happen at that point. Um, I don't think that's why Moshe Dayan did that. But anyways, so the Muslims have control of the Temple Mount at this time. That's why there's these mosques on the Temple Mount right now. How in the world will the Muslims give permission for a Jewish temple to be built on the Temple Mount? You know, some ultra-Orthodox Jews would love to blow up the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock. Um, But if they did that, that would start World War III on a scale unimaginable because how much of the world is Muslim? But you know what? At this point during the tribulation, I think the Muslims may not have a choice. And here's how I see it coming about. Again, this is my opinion, but I think it's based on Scripture. I've got some Scriptures written down on the screen there. You can see them. Uh, Daniel 9, chapter 27. Daniel 12, 11. Matthew 24, 15. Mark 13, verse 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. And Ezekiel 38 and 39. We're not going to go through each of these Scriptures. But if you're taking notes and you want to look at them later, um, or you might already be familiar with these passages... But I want to take a look, starting at first with Ezekiel's prophecy. And we won't read through it. But basically, in Ezekiel's prophecy, Russia, Iran, Ethiopia, Libya, possibly Crimea and Armenia, because of the, the names that are, the, the names Togomara and these other names that are, that are mentioned, they're gonna, going to attempt to invade Jerusalem from the north in this battle that's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it's going to look pretty bad for Israel, but God's going to intervene and miraculously destroy the invaders. And this miraculous deliverance of Israel and this humiliation of Israel's many enemies, I believe, is going to set the stage for the Antichrist who will already be on the scene in some, in some aspect to come in as a diplomat and work out an agreement in the aftermath of this battle uh, for the rebuilding of another Jewish temple. Now, again, that's my opinion. I don't know that that's thus saith the Lord. I'm not saying that. But I think that is what fits, uh, causes verse 2 to fit in with. Verse 2 of chapter 11. He says, But leave, the out, uh, believe out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, 
we've been reading about a seven-year tribulation. Uh, 42 months is three and a half years. It's half of the tribulation. Um, again, these this information is parenthetical. It's not necessarily chronological. And so maybe the question is asked, is this what we're reading about now, these 42 months, is it the first half or the second half of the tribulation? And, and, and uh, I think the 42 months when is describing, I think it's the first half of the tribulation um, because there'll be peace, diplomacy. There'll be a diplomat who will arise who the Jews will accept as their Messiah. And that's another interesting thing. For the Orthodox Jew, now if you go to Israel today, it's a very secular nation. There's not a lot of people that are, you know, waiting for the temple, but there are Orthodox Jews that are. And for the Orthodox Jew, the coming Messiah, they look at Scripture and they say he's, he'll be a descendant of King David. It's prophesied in there. But here's where they differ from Christians. They believe that the Messiah is only going to be a man. It's not going to be the Son of God. And they believe that whoever that man is, they'll, I, they'll be able to recognize him because he's going to allow them or he's going to build the temple for them. So if you, if, you, if you understand that, they are ripe for being deceived by an antichrist. A guy who's going to come in there and he's going to be the, the diplomat of diplomats, you know, the mother of all diplomats, basically. And he, he's going to get this agreement and they're going to look at him and go, he's the Messiah. We've finally been able to build our temple. Well, how will the Muslim world react to the Dome of the Rock being replaced with a Jewish temple? I mean, if you go to the Temple Institute, that's exactly what they say has to happen. The Dome of the Rock's got to be destroyed, and uh, that's where the temple's going to be built. That's where the Holy of Holies is. But there have been some recent studies and discoveries that suggest that the actual location of the Holy of Holies is not where the Dome of the Rock's standing. Now, if you go to the Temple Institute, and I did, they'll argue vigorously against that because they are the, it's, that's where it's at. But I went to this couple different websites, doing a little research on it. I came across one that had a lots of information, and then it had kind of a summary at the end, and I'm just going to read this to you. It says, The Dome of the Rock is the highest point of the Temple Mount. Threshing floors, because you recall that the temple was built on the threshing floor of Arun, I think was his name. Threshing floors were never built on hills, but in curved valleys, like directly under the Al-Khaz fountain. And this is what this summary these people think. And I'm not saying this is true necessarily, but this is what someone has reached a conclusion at. Under the Dome of the Rock was where the fortress of Antonio stood. In 135 A.D., Hadrian, which was the emperor at that time, uh, Hadrian filled in about 50 feet of earth over the top of where the temple stood and enlarged the temple mount and built a temple of Jupiter where we see the Dome of the Rock today. In 325 A.D., Constantine tore down the temple of Jupiter and assumed Hadrian built the temple of Jupiter on the spot of where the temple of Solomon once stood. Constantine built an octagon church on the site, in 700 A.D., the Muslims found the foundations of Constantine's Octagon Church and built the Dome of the Rock we see today. So that's someone's opinion. I'm not saying that, that, that this, is, this is what it is. But there's another man by the name of Dr. Asher Kaufman. And uh, in the 80s, I believe it was, uh, he did some, he was a, a, 
he did some archaeological studies. And if you go to the Temple Institute, they go, well, he's not an archaeologist. But he came up with, uh, he did some, some studies and some digging. And he thinks that the Holy of Holies was located 100 meters north of the Dome of the Rock, what's known as the Dome of the Spirits. You'll see that on the picture there on the slide. It's also known as the Dome of the Tablets. So he thinks that the Holy of Holies is 100 feet north of the Dome of the Rock. There's another person by the name of Tuviz Sagiv, and he believes that the Holy of Holies is a location south of the Dome of the Rock. Again, who knows, right? I mean, I don't know. I, I certainly don't know, and, and I, think, uh, I think at this point, nobody really knows for sure, but I do think it's quite possible that there's going to be some discovery in the future that will finally settle it for all time and identify the location of the Holy of Holies. And it quite possibly could be not where the Dome of the Rock is standing right now. If that's the case, it, you could see how this diplomat could work out after this battle, you know, and, and he could come in there and, and he could work out some agreement to allow the Gentiles to have, the, the, they could still have their, their Alaska mosque or whatever mosque they have there, and next to it on another side would be a Jewish temple. And we all live peacefully ever, you know, happily ever after. You know, that, you could see how that could take place. The Antichrist will negotiate a treaty with Israel and her enemies, possibly on the heels of the battle of Ezekiel 38, and 39 and then if you go and look through those different scriptures we know that halfway through that 7 year treaty according to those scriptures he's going to declare that he's god he's going to enter into the holy of holies declare that he's god and demand that everybody worship him and at that point the bible says the jews are going to realize that they've been duped they thought this man was the messiah and then they're going to realize he's claiming he's god and i think that's when the second half of the great tribulation begins as jesus said matthew 24:15 therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by daniel the prophet standing in the holy place it's the antichrist and those passages we read or i pointed to whoever reads let him understand verse 16 then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babes in those days. And pray that your flight might not be on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. Fascinating when you, when we look, when you put all those things together. Well, moving along here, verse 3. The angel speaking more to John. He says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,265 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, again, this is some more parenthetical information. This will be going on sometime during the tribulation, and I suspect, I suspect that it will be during the first half. And I'll explain why later. But he's told that they're going to prophesy for about uh, for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That 1,260 days, it equals three and a half years. Uh, 42 months 
equals three and a half years. The 1,260 days is a 360-day calendar. We have a 365-day calendar, but back then it was a 360-day calendar. It's three and a half years, basically. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you read the book of Zechariah, that may sound familiar to you. Because in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah has a vision of a golden lampstand that's standing in the temple. But he sees something else. In addition to the lampstand, he sees two olive trees on both sides of this lampstand, and they're supplying oil to the lampstand. Now, if you were a priest and you were working in the temple, uh, keeping that lampstand supplied with oil, the wicks trimmed and everything, it was a tedious task. It was a lot of work to keep the lamp burning all the time, to keep the oil uh, supply always in there. And this lampstand in Zechariah's vision, it's continually fed with pure olive oil straight from the tree. There's no middleman. There's no processing. It's just straight there continually feeding this um, this uh, lampstand. And so Zechariah is perplexed in his vision. And in Zechariah 4 verse 11, he says this, Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you know not, not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Verse 14, So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Fascinating prophecy there in Ezekiel 4. What was the Lord telling Zechariah? I think it's that Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, they were going to be anointed by God with his spirit and with his power to finish the building of the temple. As it says there in Zechariah 14, verse 6, just as Zerubbabel and... Uh, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have that slide. <laughs> uh, okay. During that time, Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, the high priest, they were, they, the temple had already been started to be built. People grew discouraged, and they kind of let it go for a while, for I think it was like 14 years. God speaks to Zechariah and encourages Zechariah, excuse me, encourages Zerubbabel and Joshua to continue to, to finish the job. And they would be anointed by the Spirit with the task of doing this rebuilding this temple, finishing the job. So these two witnesses here in Revelation 11, they would be anointed with God's spirit and with God's power to be a witness. And in this case, it'd be against the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And there's an interesting thing. Notice that the spirit of God is not resting on the Ark of the Covenant that they'll probably find and they'll probably have in this new temple. <coughs> Spirit of God is not resting there. The Spirit of God is outside of the temple resting on these two witnesses because God's not in that temple. This is man's work trying to, trying to reject Jesus Christ. Well, for you and I, you can say, okay, that's interesting information. How does it apply to me? Well, right now, you and I as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we have that same Holy Spirit dwelling inside of each of us. 
empowering us, equipping us, constantly supplying us with his power, his spirit, in order to be a testimony for Jesus Christ. We have the same Holy Spirit. It's not like a different Holy Spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit. That, I hope that encourages you because you and I have a job to do in this world. We have, a, we have a ministry. Each one of us has a ministry. But we don't do it in our own strength. We do it by the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Well, verse 5 of chapter 11. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So if these prophets get up on a bad day, <laughs> you know, hey, these two witnesses, I'm a bad day. I'm going to uh, let's send some fire down. <laughs> Who are these two witnesses? Well, a lot of people think, and I think there's a biblical explanation for it that it the one of the witnesses is elijah the reason why in malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 which is the very end of the old testament malachi prophesies and says behold i will send you elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the of the children to their fathers lest i come and strike the earth with a curse now in in uh, Wednesday nights, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we just finished talking about the transfiguration of Jesus when he went up on the mountain there, and he was transfigured before Peter and James and John's eyes. And Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain with Jesus. Matthew's account of the transfiguration, in Matthew 17, verse 10, it says, And his disciples asked him, saying, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first, speaking about the return of Jesus Christ? And Matthew, uh, verse 11 of Matthew 17, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Verse 13, it says, Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So in other words, Jesus confirmed Malachi's prophecy. Hey, Elijah is going to come. But if you can accept it, Elijah has already come in, in, in John the Baptist. In other words, John the Baptist was, was walking in the, the ministry and, the, and the, the calling of John the Baptist. Or excuse me, yeah, of, of Elijah, excuse me. The calling and the ministry of Elijah. But Jesus is confirming, hey, Elijah must come first. So a lot of people say, well, that one of the, one of the prophecies, uh, one of the witnesses, I should say, is Elijah. One of the things that these witnesses will be empowered to do have be the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And we know from James chapter 5, verse 17, he writes this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So one of these, uh, the, the power to withhold rain and, 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 and to shed heaven, this was a miracle that Elijah was, was effected through Elijah. 
And so they say, well, probably one of these prophets, or one of these witnesses, I should say, will be Elijah. Also, one of the other qualities or descriptions, it says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And there's an interesting story in Second Kings about Elijah. The king of Israel sent a captain of 50 with his men to go get Elijah. And they came and they found Elijah there sitting on top of a hill. And the captain of 50 called out to Elijah and said, Man of God, the king has said, come down. And Elijah said, If I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down and consumed him and his 50 men. So then the king sent another captain of 50 with another uh, 50 men. And he came and saw Elijah and said, Man of God, the king has said, Come down quickly. And Elijah responded, if, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him with his 50. Now this king, he must have had a lot of captains because he goes, well, send another captain. So he sends a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain of 50 men, he sees Elijah. And the Bible says he came up fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said, man, I'm a family guy. <laughs> I've got a family at home. I've got a mortgage to pay. You know, I, please, would you please come with me? <laughs> That's not what he said. He says, man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50s with their 50s. But let my life now be precious in your sight. And then the Lord told Elijah, go ahead and go with him. And so that man was spared in his 50. But some, that's probably part of why most people feel that Elijah is one of these witnesses. But what about the other witness? There was two witnesses, right? Who's the other witness? That's a little bit harder to tell. And there are some different opinions. Some people say that it's Enoch. Well, who was Enoch? He was the seventh from Adam. The Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness. We know that he walked with God and was not, for God took him. So Enoch never died. Now, Elijah also didn't die. Elijah was translated up to heaven in a chariot of fire, or with a chariot of fire. So both Elijah and Enoch did not experience death in their lifetimes. And so people that say, well, it's Enoch... They go to Hebrews 9.27 where it says that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And so they say, hey, these two guys have not died, so it's, it's been appointed for men to die once, so it makes sense. Elijah hasn't died and Enoch hasn't died, so these are the two witnesses. And it's a, it's a fair argument. There are those that argue against it, however, against it being Enoch. First of all, Enoch is a type of the church in the Old Testament. And there is a generation of the church that's not going to experience death. That last generation that will be alive, hopefully it's our generation, will be raptured to heaven, won't experience death. Not only that, but there are a lot of people in the Bible who died even more than once. You know, think about it. The widow of Nain's son, resurrected and then later died. Lazarus, resurrected from the dead and then died. All those that came up from the tombs after Christ's resurrection, man, all of a sudden there's all these people that were dead, they're walking around in Jerusalem after his resurrection. Or, yeah, after his crucifixion, I should say. They're 
they died again. Jairus' daughter died again. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Not only that, but technically, Enoch wasn't even a Jew. You go, wait a minute, that's, that's, how can that be? Listen, he preceded Jacob. Jacob's the father of Israel, or Jacob is Israel. His children are the children of Israel. So technically, Enoch wasn't even a Jew. Now, I'm not saying that that's a valid argument, but um, there is other candidates. Um, I know J. Vernon McGee thinks that it's uh, John the Baptist. Um, again, I don't know. But one of the other ones that is probably a, a, another, I think, a strong argument would be Moses, being Elijah and Moses. Because some of these other miracles, they have power over water to turn them to blood. And we know that that's one thing that Moses was, was did there uh, as a plague to Egypt. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Again, that was another thing that, that uh, Moses was able to do. Not only that, but if you think about the transfiguration, both Moses and Elijah were the ones, not Elijah and Enoch, that met with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. It was almost like a planning meeting, you know, what's going to take place, you know. Moses was the lawgiver, representing the law. Elijah was the prophet, representing the prophets. The law and the prophets, it sums up the Bible. And so it's, you know, both the law and the prophets are pointing to the return of Jesus Christ. So I think it's a pretty strong argument that it could be Moses would be the other um, witness. But again, we're not really told, so nobody really knows for sure. But anyways, verse 7, whoever they are, when they finish their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So up until this time, anyone that comes up and approaches them, they call down fire from heaven, burns them up, destroys them. They're, they're invincible. But at some point, the Antichrist is going to have victory over these two witnesses. But guess what? That's, it says there in verse 7, it's only when their ministry, when their testimony is complete. You see, God doesn't measure our lives by days and years. We do, but God doesn't. God measures our lives by his purpose in us. And God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And if you think about it, in a sense, in a sense, you and I are immortal until his purpose is accomplished. And when his purpose is accomplished for us, that's when he calls his children home. You know, sometimes we look at, at Christians, other, you know, that they, their lives, maybe a young Christian died, and, and you go, man, their life was, was just cut short. Remember, there was a Calvary Chapel pastor in Wisconsin that, that we were friends with, and we used to go, he used to have a music con, uh, festival out in his, uh, at his church, and and he died at a relatively young age. And it's like, why? It seemed like his life was cut short, and yet God, obviously, that his time, he had, he had finished what he was called to do in his life. God just called him home. I'm not going to make him hang out when he, when he was done. You know, there are times when we can't understand when someone's life, we think someone's life's been cut short, but... but for the believer, man, I, I just got to trust God's wisdom and his timing. He knows what he's doing. And sometime in eternity, it's going to make sense. When, it, when we see Jesus Christ face to face, it'll all make sense then. But right now, I just got to trust in his wisdom. The verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's 
tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. So this great city, we're told, is where Jesus, where our Lord was crucified. Spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt, but, but it's Jerusalem. We know it's Jerusalem. But what's fascinating about this prophecy is only in your and my generation can the whole world observe the dead bodies of these two witnesses. Before you and I were born, uh, you know, I mean, before satellite, you know, uh, communications, uh, you know, live streaming, all that stuff, before it was impossible. How could the whole world observe this? And now it's like, well, it makes sense to us, of course. It'll be blasted on the news. Only in our generation, this prophecy makes sense. But what's interesting, so the Antichrist is going to finally be allowed to have a victory over these two. You know, he's going to be allowed to kill them, these two witnesses. And they're going to be so hated that the people are going to just leave their dead bodies in the streets for three and a half days and not allow them to be buried. Now, in both Jewish and Muslim cultures, yeah, both Jewish and Muslim cultures, probably many, most cultures, to not give someone a proper burial, that's a disgrace. You see, these guys are going to be hated so much, they don't even want to give them a burial, a proper burial. Verse 10, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. How did these two witnesses torment those who dwell on the earth? By preaching the word of God and by living a holy life. Can you imagine that? The world looks at that time, the world's going to look at those who are living a holy life and those who are preaching the word. They're tormenting us. Maybe you're already experiencing that in your, in your workplace or whatever right now. People don't want to hear the gospel. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, that perfectly describes what's going to be taking place here. Listen, they're preaching in Jerusalem. They're Jewish. They're preaching in Jerusalem. The Jews finally have a temple at this point. And here's these two witnesses who are preaching against the temple and preaching Jesus Christ to the people around them. I think it's the Jews themselves are probably going to be the most incensed and hating of these twos, with maybe the exception of the Antichrist. But I think it's going to be the majority of, it's going to be Jewish people that are going to be so strongly hating this, these two witnesses because they're upsetting the apple cart. Hey, we finally got our temple. We're finally able to do it. And you're telling us that Jesus is the Messiah, that this temple doesn't even honor God. They're going to hate that message. And so the Antichrist is going to be given authority to, to kill them. And it's going to be Christmas, so to speak, in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? They're going to give gifts to one another. Happy murder of two witness day. You know, whatever they call it. I don't know. But it, it, that's how happy they're going to be that these two witnesses are finally dead and gone that they're going to give gifts to one another but here's the interesting thing verse 11 
Now after the three and a half days, the breath of God, uh, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Again, the whole world's witnessing this. Now apparently, the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation, you know, you think about it. If you have Christian airlines, you know, and you've got a pilot that's flying a, our, our friend Jay, you know, he's a pilot of Alaska Airlines, and, you know, he's a born-again believer in Jesus. When the rapture hits, hopefully his co-pilots, you know, go on autopilot or whatever, but he'll be gone. What's going to happen to the airplane? What's going to be happen to different industries when all of a sudden these Christians are raptured out of their world? Apparently... The uh, major news outlets aren't going to be impacted that much. They'll still have staff for having live television. So if you can just imagine, there's going to be this live reporting from from Jerusalem of these these bodies laying on the street. Uh, you know, it's day three and they're they're still the bodies are still there laying on the street. And can you imagine? Here's this anchor. You know, in the background, there's these dead bodies, and, and it's like we're we're at day three. They're still, you know, they're still not letting us anybody bury the things. And as the guy's talking, all of a sudden, these guys get up, and all of a sudden, they're they're called up to heaven. The guy, maybe he's talking, he doesn't even realize, and everybody else is like, you know, watching what's going on. Can you imagine that? Amazing. I think these two witnesses are going to be on the scene during the first half of the tribulation. I really do. I, I believe once that temple's in place, these, you know, there's seemingly peace and prosperity in a Jew, Jewish temple, and these two witnesses, the world's going to say, you're tormenting us uh, by preaching Christ and by living a holy life. I think once those two witnesses are murdered by the Antichrist, I think it's shortly after that is when he's going to go into the temple and demand to be worshipped. And that's when the second half of the three and a half year tribulation or the seven year tribulation takes place. That's when Jesus said the, the Jews that witnessed that they should flee Judah, the Antichrist. He's going to be he's going to he's going to go after any Jews that are alive at that point. Verse 13. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell in the earthquake. Seven thousand people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And we're going to stop there this morning. But you know, you think about it. In those days, those witnesses, they're preaching. They're preaching Christ. And I'm sure there's going to be many that are going to come to faith in Christ. But in the same token, there's going to be many that are going to hate them. And you know, we look at our culture today. And we're living in a day, even now, where good is called evil and evil is called good. I mean, you know, we're hate mongers. If we say anything about any, you know, we talk about sin or anything, then we hate certain groups of people and stuff. Zerubbabel and Joshua, they were discouraged, but they needed to be encouraged to finish the work of the temple. And it wasn't by their might, it wasn't by their power, but by their spirit. And these witnesses, they were given that Holy Spirit uh, the Holy Spirit to, to empower them to be able to witness in a difficult world and in a, in a world that hates them. And you and I, we have that same Holy Spirit this morning. And we have the same message. The message hasn't changed either. We, we preach Christ and Him crucified. 
And to some, some people who will accept it, it's like a fragrance of, you know, it's, it's the beautiful thing. Have you ever prayed with someone to receive Christ and then later have them come up to you and go, man, I wish you'd never done that. I hate, I hate the fact that you did that. I wish you'd never done that. I've never experienced that. I've only experienced, man, I am so glad that the Lord led you to me or that we were able to pray. I'm so, I'm so happy, you know. I've never had someone say, wow, I wish that wouldn't have happened. But to others, you know, they don't want to hear the word. And we, we're experiencing that now. But I want to encourage you, you guys, have, we have the same Holy Spirit to equip us and, to, and we have the same message. So hopefully you're encouraged. And the thing is, you, know, you might say, well, what can man do to me? I don't need to be afraid of what man can do to me because I'm invincible until the Lord calls me home. So are you. We can just preach the word and not worry about it. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. And uh, Lord, as we read about things that I, I don't believe the church will be witnessing this, Lord, we'll be in heaven uh, probably watching it from a balcony or something. But, uh, Lord, uh, we know that this is going to be a difficult time for those that are uh, still on the earth during this time. But, Lord, we even look at our lives now, and, Lord, we, we know that even now things are getting increasingly difficult. And, Lord, we see a stage being set for people that, that want to be deceived. Lord, they're, they're, they're ripe for deception. They're ripe for an antichrist to come on the scene to to lead them astray. And, and Lord, we're there. You, you and I, Lord, you've called us salt and light. We're here, Lord, to be a preservative in our culture, to be, uh, to be a cleansing, uh, having a cleansing effect on those around us, Lord, to be a light that points to you. And Lord, we can't do it in our own strength. We need your Holy Spirit. And I thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that as New Testament uh, new covenant believers, Lord, your Holy Spirit, it's a continual filling. It's a continual uh, empowering and indwelling of your Holy Spirit, Lord God, just as, a, just as like Ezekiel's vision there. So I thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit, Lord. I thank you that, Lord, we don't have to fear our life being cut short because it won't, Lord, as long as we're, we're fulfilling your purpose, Lord God. And, and when that time's up, then, then you'll call us home. And Lord, I pray that we would be focused on your kingdom and that, Lord, when you return or when we see you face to face, that we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So thank you for your word this morning, Lord. And uh, we just ask your blessing on our uh, worship time now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can stay standing if you would. (coughs) 